Um, I think we're going. Okay. So uh, I want to introduce you. Uh, are we flipped over? Okay, great. All right. I want to introduce you to our new series, which is Ruth. And I want to tell you how incredibly excited I am about this series. And I want to say that in this sense, and thanks for the clock. Uh, I want to say that in this sense. This was the most interesting way for me to get into a sermon series that I've ever had. I've never had anything like this happen. Here's what happened. Usually, about two, three months before we're about to do a new series, God starts laying a few things on my heart, you know, a book or an idea or whatever. And, he, and, it, and there's maybe two or three that are rummaging through my head and heart. And then all of a sudden, one of them, it's kind of like God just backs up the truck, you know, beep, beep, beep. And he just starts dumping insight, revelation, understanding, ideas, all kinds of stuff. I'll have so many notes before I'll start a sermon. It's unbelievable. I mean, just, you can, you know, the sermons are long and they could be so much longer. So count your blessings. Now they'll be shorter. <laughs> I'm working on it. Okay. But, but anyway, the point is, is that I'll have all of these different ideas and I'll have all this stuff happening and everything else. Well, about three, four months ago, I started thinking Ruth. And I don't know why I would think Ruth. I just kind of, Ruth is, kind of feels like it. And I, I mentioned it to a few people and went, oh man, I'd love for you to do that book. And there's some cool things and blah, blah, blah. And I was just kind of playing with it in my head. And the problem was, is I never got the beep, 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 backing up the truck part. I literally never got that. And so even about like a month and a half ago, six weeks ago, we got together as a creative team and, and we get together and we talk about what kind of graphics we're going to do. And you'll see that this is just a PowerPoint template. There's no cool graphics on it right now. And the reason why you'll hear in a second. But bottom line is, is that, you know, I, we, we talked and I said, you know, I really feel like it's Ruth, but the problem is I'm just not getting ideas, but I really think it's supposed to be that. So we, we organized this whole rollout of all the various pieces that we were going to do to, you know, have the graphics and promote it and do all this kind of stuff. And I literally called him up the next day and I just said, I just don't think I can move forward without Revelation. So I think it's supposed to be Ruth, but just don't do anything right now. Don't work. I might not use it. I don't want you to do work you don't have to do. So I, I just waited. And then I waited, and then and God did some interim things, and I waited, and I waited, and it got all the way to the point to where it's Monday, this week, Monday, and I'm still really feeling like I'm supposed to do Ruth, but nothing is coming, and I'm doing some research, and I'm looking at some things, and there's a lot of really good stuff, but you know the difference between just a good idea and life? The, 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 these are good ideas, but they don't have that, oh my gosh, revelation, wow, to them. There's just not that life in them. And so I'm just sort of, I don't know what to do. And Tuesday comes and Wednesday comes. I mean, Wednesday, you know, Thursday's the day I'm going to write this thing. And Wednesday, literally, not a clue what I'm supposed to say. So I get to Thursday morning and I'm like, you know, I feel like God's telling me to chill and not worry about it. I get to Thursday morning. He says, don't go out for your walk. Do some research. So I'm doing some research. And I'm reading, and I'm reading. He leads me to the, my commentary I like the least of any other, and I use it all the time. And the reason why I use it all the time is because it's incredibly scholarly so that I can check myself. If I have an idea about something, I want to know, am I solid on this? Can I say this in front of people and be accountable before the Lord for this? So I go to these really scholarly, this particular one and in particular other ones too. But I go and I say, am I, am I within the realm of possibility and so on in this? Am I okay here, right? So I but the problem is this thing is so dry. I mean, I'm telling you, if I sit up here and, and read the stuff that they're talking about and higher critical stuff and textual criticisms and, and you know, just authorship issues and uh, just ugh, gag me with a spoon. 
I just hate it, right? And, I, and so I'm, I'm having to read this introduction to this book, and I'm going, this is such a beautiful book, and my God, you've wringed every ounce of life out of it in this introduction arguing about who wrote it and when they wrote it and how they wrote it and what they wrote it for. And it's just, just I'm, but I feel like God's telling me, keep reading. And I'm spending a lot of time. I'm, in, I'm over an hour in this thing now, and I'm reading and reading, and I'm, I keep feeling like God's telling me, and all of a sudden, Interestingly, not the particular commentator, but a one that he quoted. And I read a quote I'm going to read to you here in a little bit. And I read this quote and I just went, ugh. Ugh. Never saw that. How many times have I read the book of Ruth? Seriously could not count them. Uh, you know, just uh, so many times. I could tell you the story from memory. Easy. Never saw this. So I realized at that moment that God says, now go out for your walk. And I'm going, but I just have one idea. That's not a sermon, you know, and I, how do you build it? And I, okay, I'll get it at my walk. So I go out for my walk, and I walk all the way around, and I, I get all the way to where I'm just like, I, I walk the longest possible route that I can walk, and I still have this one idea that's really captured my heart, but that's it. And I'm like, I'm supposed to go home right now and write this sermon. And I actually prayed for my brother. I said, I'm in trouble. And I asked him to pray for me. I said, I need a miracle. And, and, I, and he just said, just sit down and start writing. And I sit down and I start writing. And, and the, the first probably 45 minutes of what I wrote never is going to see the light of day. It was just me fishing around trying to find something that might. But all of a sudden, after about 45 minutes, as I was just working on it, all of a sudden, I just felt him. And it, I just kind of slotted into this place. And I just started following this thread where it was leading me. And I'm writing this stuff down, and I'm writing it down. And, and he's putting all kinds of thoughts into it that I don't know what they mean, but I can tell that they're the Lord. So I'm literally writing this sermon just like a dick, like, like writing it down. You know, like, I mean, like somebody's dictating it to me almost. And I'm, 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 and I'm doing this, and all of a sudden, bam, it comes right to that quote. It just, the thing I'm doing just leads right to that quote. And I'm like, this is amazing. And then... All of a sudden, when I get to that quote this time with the information that he put into me from writing the sermon, it, it wasn't just a wow revelation. It was a, a wow and a wow and a wow. I mean, it just blew me away, which is why I did something I've never done before in all my time that I can remember. I might have done it, but I don't think I have ever done this before. But I actually wrote an email to all the women in this church, and I said, you have to hear the sermon. Because God wants to say something to you that I just think it will blow you away. And here's what I do want to say. And I put it in the letter to them. I said, and by all means, bring your guys because they're going to be slack-jawed too. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, look at this. And they're going to see you differently because of this. This thing that God wants to say to women, but it's very much for all of us. So that's where we are. And I just want to say I am so excited about it. Oh, that is awesome. Deb Thompson, where are you? You're the one that's praying for our message today. Thank you. Father God, we just, we thank you for the rain that gives us the beauty of this area. And we just pray in the midst of the changes, the shorter days, that it would draw us inside, but also draw us into connection with our neighbors that this would be a time of gathering and community that we could share what we have. We could make those new friendships that 
we can show others where you're working in our lives. Thank you, Lord. God, I thank you for all that you've shown Kurt this week. Pray that it would be your words alone that Amen. we would hear this morning, that they would touch us as deeply as, as they've touched him. Amen. And God, I, I want to lift up over like Prez as they reach into their community. Pray that they would draw in those who are looking for more, thank you, who Jesus. are looking for you, God. Thank you, Lord. And we just thank you for all the things that you're doing in our community and in us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Adam, I need you to remind me about offering because I can just tell right now I'm not going to remember it. Okay? Uh, all right. And that's before we, yeah. Okay. I want to say I'm mindful partly because of what the Lord did in this, but just because I'm not incredibly stupid. I'm mindful that a guy teaching on Ruth is problematic. I think a guy or a gal can teach on any part of the Bible, period, right? But there are certain places, certain things, certain themes that are just a little more female-centric or a little more male-centric to where the depth of what this thing really is is going to be brought out by one gender more than another. And Ruth, interestingly, is one of those places in the Bible. And I do want to say something. This is the only book in the Bible where women speak more than men. Now, interestingly, in terms of all the other history, all the other texts of religion that are in the world, that makes it the most spoken about religious, where women speak the most of any book in all the world because of every other religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, so on. In all those other religions, you don't have women mentioned at all. Except in Islam, where Mother, the Mary of Jesus, is mentioned two times. And just in passing, not as an analysis or anything like this. But this is this book about women going through this particular thing. And in a way, that it just makes me mindful that there's probably going to be themes about what these women are doing that as a man, I'm not going to get it. Right? And, and, and now one of these revelations, when we get to the place where I'm giving you a revelation, some women are going to kind of go... Wow, you're thinking that's like a really big revelation and the women are kind of going to go, duh. You didn't know that? Women, can I make something incredibly clear? No, we didn't know that. <laughs> Honest to God, <laughs> okay? Now, the truth is we can't know that. Just like you can't know some things about guys, but you know, right? But the bottom line is, no, we really can't get that. So I'm very mindful of something, which is, this spirit, I, I remember, this is about seven years ago now, and Julie and I had visited a young couple that had just had a, their first baby and all this kind of stuff, and we went in there, and we just did what we normally do, and we just talk and have fun with them and, and, and everything else. And one of the things that, you know, I'm just a fairly empathetic guy, and I know that it was pretty painful during the childbirth process, and so I'll do things that I think are fairly empathetic and let them know that, you know what I mean, I get that they went through a very painful experience, and isn't it wonderful? And I'll, I'll say things like this. And I did, I've done that for years and years and years, way before here. And, and I remember this so vividly because we were walking out of the room one day and Julie, in the way that only Julie could do it for me, she turned to me and in, in a kind and gentle fashion, we had a come to Jesus moment. Okay. I mean, it was incredibly, you know, and basically what she said is she stopped me in the hall of the hospital. I remember it. And she turned to me and she said, now I know that you think that you understand what a woman is going through in childbirth. You don't. <laughs> and I don't want you to talk like you do ever again. <laughs> and I knew that that was true. 
And so I backed out, and I've never done it since. <laughs> so if I don't seem empathetic to your pain, gals, blame Julie. Okay? But bottom line, uh, you know, I get it. There's some things that are just going to be that way. And, and that's the thing. I think if you kind of take that thought and run with it a little bit, this is the thing about Ruth that makes it unbelievably precious, is maybe the right word. Because Ruth is this tiny little book, four chapters, a couple of pages. You can read it in 15 minutes if you take your time. And, and as you're going through it, you know, you've read it before, and it's a nice story, and it, it'll touch you, it'll move you. It, it, it'll be really cool, and it'll inspire you in some ways and so on. But you can basically just go right through the book of Ruth in one setting, get something out of it, and think that that's what's in it. And boy, have you made a mistake. Because the thing about Ruth is, if I can say this this way, this is God writing a letter in an incredibly female way. And I don't even think females reading it can, I, I think I'll get to places here today that even the women will say, oh my gosh, I didn't see, I never saw that in that book. In fact, next week, you want to be here because we're going to talk about the word hesed, which is really the theme of the book, mercy and the faithfulness, a kindness, a gentleness of God. And, and it's going to be amazing, okay? But bottom line, as I'm, I, this, is, this is one of those stories that's told so simply that it can be, it, it can fool you. This is a book, right? The reason I have these roses up here is I want you to have this thought of, taking time to smell the roses. You have to slow down when you read Ruth. You have to read it in a contemplative, meditative state. You have to let it soak into you. You gotta just, you gotta take time to smell the roses that are in there. Because when you do, you know when you have those experiences where there's something that's really sort of subtle and nuanced and everything else, and it's so simple, so elegant, put so perfectly that, you know, you can go through it, but if you'll slow down and you'll go slow, all of a sudden you'll go, oh my gosh, it's through the looking glass. It's like you go, oh my gosh, look at that, oh my gosh, look at that, oh my gosh, look at that. And it's like you've gone into this story, and by going into this simple little story, you go into the universe of God. It just opens you up to this thing about God that is astounding. So that's what we're going to try and do. And just to sort of kick it off, I do want you to understand that, in, in, that this is written at about the time that David becomes king, about a thousand years before Christ. But it's a story that has been being told orally for, we don't know how long, but a hundred some years so the point is, David's at the very beginning of what's called the kingly period, right? And this is the time, the story comes from the time of Judges. And this is important because in Judges, what you have is people doing this particular thing, which is this roller coaster. They've come into the land, the Israelites have, and what they've done, they're on their own. And what they do is, is as God prospers them, as they seek his face, God prospers them. And as they get really prosperous, what do they do? They start to forget him. 
as they start to forget him, the sort of bell curve starts to swing down, and it, the, the curve starts to swing down, and all of a sudden famines and bad things will start to happen, and then they'll come down to the bottom, and there'll be people attacking them and killing them, and they'll cry out to God, and as they cry out to God, he'll come again, and they'll go back up, and then they'll get past the bad thing, and they'll get to a place of prosperity, and then they'll go again, and they'll go over the, and it's this roller coaster throughout the entire book. Until, until the very end, where basically the condemnation is, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And what that means, just to really make it clear, is here's what that means. They did what they wanted to do. They did what seemed right to them, not what God was commanding and not what God had for them. That's what that, that means. They were doing their things their way, not God's things his way. And it was a problem. And then it leads into Kings, and we'll get into that in other sermons. But the bottom line is, is we have this period, and that's important because in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, see, a severe famine came upon the land. And the likelihood is, is that that famine was there because they were in one of these periods of time. When they were going downhill and things were bad, they were, God was withdrawing his protection as they would go after other gods. And so they were doing this. And so... What happens is, is that a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. And a little butchering on the names here, sorry. The man's name was uh, Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi, and the two sons were Malon and Kilion, or Chilion, and they were Ephrath Ephrathites uh, from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And they, when they reached Moab, they settled there. Now let me just show you on a map what that looks like. This is actually the journey home. But there's Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And boy, is this book hooked in with Christ. Okay? I mean, we're going to see this in the coming weeks in an amazing way. But this book is totally hooked in with Christ. Bethlehem where he was born. But then you see Jerusalem just south of Jerusalem. And then you go over here. And this is the land of Moab over in here. And in one sense, yeah, there are Jews over there. But in another very real sense, the marker between Israel and all the people who hate her is that river right there, the Jordan. If you're on this side of the Jordan, you're in Israel. If you're on this side of the Jordan, you are technically not in Israel, although there's, you know, but let me just leave that aside. You're in a place where people don't like you. It, it would be a lot like this. It would be like, you know, right now if I immigrated to Canada right? Because there was a famine here and I went to Canada somehow. We wouldn't think too much of that. But what if Iran was up there? It would be like me moving to Iran, a place where they hated me and everybody here couldn't figure out why I went there. And, you know, it is not cool, okay? It brings suspicion. So that's what's going on. Now, with that in mind, then, then, uh, Elamaic died. Anyway, Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons, by the way, I, the reason I'm having a problem with that is I find it pronounced different ways. And I can't ever remember which way it's pronounced. So the two sons married a Moabite woman. One married a woman named Orpah. The other one, a woman named Ruth. Now, I want to show you then. So, so this is the family tree here. Okay? Here you got these two. You got the sons. They're marrying. Here's the, one, the son that died. There's Ruth. Ruth ends up with Boaz eventually. But look at this then Obed, then Jesse, then David. Okay? Now, the reason, you know, I said this was being written about the time that David is becoming king, but think about this for just a second here. Okay? This means that the king of Israel is allowing a story to be written that makes him suspect as a ruler of Israel. 
He's, got, he's not purebred. He's not an Israelite. Israelite men are not supposed to marry other women. Why? And by the way, it's more, Israelite women aren't supposed to marry non-Israelite men, but the problem is worse, men marrying women. You remember, in, as they're moving into the land, there's a prophet that they call to try and destroy him. A guy calls his prophet, and the guy basically, after several other things, does this. He says, here's how you ruin them. Just let them interact with the women there. <laughs> That's how to ruin the guys. Because here's what will happen. They're going to think the girls are pretty. They're going to take them for their wives, and the wives are going to bring their religion and that's going to corrupt the family and the community to the point that God is going to judge them, which is true. Now, think about that. Doesn't that work the other way too? Yeah, it does, but not really. Think about it. Who's more religious naturally? You see this in the New Testament. Women mentioned much more than men are. Women are more naturally religious, and I think that there's a reason for it morphologically. That means brain-wise. Because there is a part of the brain that we've, that we've identified that seems to be particularly used when you're having a spiritual experience. When, when God is talking to you, when you're communing with God, there's a part of the brain that seems to really light up. And women are spaghetti in their brains, right? So the point is, if one part of their brain is lighting up about God, that's going to get into the network of all that they're thinking about. So, when, so religion comes and, and infuses everything that they're thinking. So it becomes incredibly mixed in with who they are as a person and everything that they're about and so on. Men are waffles. What that means is we're compartmentalized. See, we've got our religion over here. We've got our job over here. We've got something else over here. We've got something else. You see what I mean? And when the woman comes in with the religion, we compartmentalize that too. Well, I'm this religion and you're this religion. And I'm putting this in this compartment and that and mine in this compartment. And the problem is, instead of converting the woman, instead of evangelizing, instead of reaching out to her and doing that kind of a thing, the men just let it go, and then this thing just gradually seeps into the relationship. And sure enough, now you're serving more than one God. Do you remember Solomon's, David, Solomon's son? Solomon, David's son. This is how he falls, right? He marries a whole bunch of women from a whole bunch of different lands, and he gets pulled away. So this is something that God warns against, and this is something that they're doing, and this is something that right here in the family line, look at it. it, it this, is, this is a problem. The fact that Ruth is in David's line, this is not something that David should be advertising. This is bad politics. Okay? You don't put this, you know, you don't let your opponent use this against you because nobody's going to vote for you because this guy's more pure. Or whatever. You catch the drift? Now, now, do understand something, though. Why does God let it be in the Bible? And why does David let it be there? He was king after all. He could have stomped the story out. Well, the David part we'll get to in a second. But why does God let it be in the Bible? There is a, there is a sub-theme in here. Do understand, in Matthew, we have a genealogy going down to David. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, and all this kind of stuff. You do realize there's four women mentioned in this genealogy, right? Did you realize that all four of them are Gentiles? Did you realize that one's a prostitute, one acted like a prostitute, and one was the adulterous affair that David had with Bathsheba? Ruth is the only one that's sort of, you know, clean throughout. Now, the point is, God is trying to do two things, I think, with this, and I think they're both very important, and they're the subject of another sermon, which we're not going to do because I'm telling it to you right now, and I just feel like it's one of those good ideas, but I didn't catch the life in it. But here's something that we really got to remember about the genealogy of Jesus. God was never just about the Jews. And he made it clear in the genealogical line. He kept bringing in these Gentile influences. 
Because what he was doing was he was saying, I'm not just, I chose them to be with them so that people could watch how I interact with them and they could learn about me. But the goal was always that the world should learn about me and come to me. It was not that they would be the chosen, more special, better off. They're the only ones that I'm after. Or I love them more or more special or anything. It was exactly the opposite of that. It was God was saying, I've just chosen one people and they weren't different than everybody else. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to interact with them. And as people see how I interact, they're going to see who I am. And ultimately, I'm going to be bringing all of them in too with that example. And sure enough, here we are, 2,000 years from the time of Christ, 3,000 years from the time that this book was written, still learning from how God interacted. And one of the things that we're learning is, is that he put this Gentile thing in there because all the time he was saying... I'm after the whole world. All right? Okay. So now let's get back to our story so that we're just building some themes here. About 10 years later, both Malon and Kileon died, and this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah. See, blowing back up again by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road, you saw the map already, that would have led them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Stop. Go back to your mother's homes. May the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Now, I do want to make one thing just clear. This is not a Jewish mother saying, oh, don't worry about me. I'll be fine in this 50-degree house. Okay? This is not Jewish guilt. These are people that absolutely loved one another. These are people that were committed to one another. And I want to stop and smell one of the beautiful roses that's right here. I want you to consider the depths of what Naomi just did. There is no social security back in Israel. There is no welfare. There is no governmental program. There is no economy such that an older woman without anybody else in her life could go back and get a job doing some sort of something for which she would receive a paycheck from which she could then buy shelter and food. There's not even, as the story unfolds, we find a family to which she can go that will take her in. There is a family but there's not close enough that they're going to take her in and provide for her. Here's what she's going back to. Gleaning. What's gleaning? God says, there's always going to be poor amongst you. So when you're harvesting, as you harvest, stuff falls to the ground. If you want to be really miserly, you can pick all that stuff up, but don't. Leave it on the ground so that poor people can come and pick up enough to live from. God has, his, that's kind of his, you know, social security program, I guess. You know what I mean? But let me say, it's backbreaking. And it would be incredibly difficult for an older woman to be safe, to be able to do the work, to be able to survive in that environment. This woman is going back to nothing, worse than nothing, hardship. There are two women with her that are younger and do have good backs and could do this and could glean enough to provide for the three of them. 
And if Naomi was not doing this incredibly selfless act, this incredibly gracious thing of saying to her daughters-in-law, go back home where your families are going to take care of you. Coming with me is going to be nothing but extreme poverty and hardship. So do not stay with me. Think about the depths of what she's going through at this moment, of what she's giving up. This, is, this could lead literally to her starvation. And she's insisting that they go back. Now that's not all that's in this particular rose. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. This is a mother who has lost her husbands and both sons. And she's telling them to go and get married to someone else so that you can be provided for. She's, it's heartache on top of hardship. I mean, this is an incredible moment. Right here what Naomi does. Soon to be trumped. Because what happens is, no, they said, we want to go with you to your people. Naomi replies, remember something about the Jewish customs. If a son is married to a daughter, or married, excuse me, married to a girl, and the son dies, then the next younger brother has to marry the, the woman and produce kids from her so that the older son will have a lineage. And this had to do with land, and it just had to do with God wanting to propagate the name, and it just had to do with, in a time when a lot of people died, as you're seeing in the story, this was a way of keeping a family alive. So this is a really good idea in that time period. And the bottom line is, is Naomi replies, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up and be your husbands? And provide for you and do this? It's a man's world. There's no way for a woman on her own to survive well. Okay? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home for I'm too old to marry again. And even if I were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, no, don't do that. Of course not. It's not reasonable. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Now, you want to know her state? That tells you it right there. She's in an incredibly difficult place. She thinks that God is after her. And there are times when all of us can think that God is after us. Here's the thing that I want to say. He is, but not like that. He's always after you to free and to bless. And sometimes the journey to a resurrection moment sucks. In fact, the whole point about resurrection is that something died and it was difficult. And then it can resurrect. Right? So bottom line. Okay, things are far more bitter for you than, than for me. And then, again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to your people and to her gods. You should do the same. And now we get to that famous, famous line. The one that most people have read it a few times can quote because it's just so incredible. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. 
Now I'm to the quote. Let this soak in. This is by a guy named Tribble. Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. Think about this. No God has called her. That's where you usually see people doing sacrificial things in the Bible, right? God called them to leave her or to sacrifice their son or do something else. God called them, and they did it in obedience. So we understand why they're doing it. She doesn't have that. She does not have a call from God. No deity has promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support group, and she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection. Remember, she's a Moabitess going into Israel. She will be hated. Indeed, it might even lead to her death. Consequently, not even Abraham's leap of faith when he was willing to kill his son surpasses this decision of Ruth. Now it goes on. Listen to this. And there's more. Not only has Ruth broken with her family, country, and faith. She's broken with her family, her country, and her faith. But she has also reversed sexual allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. I read that. I've read this book a lot of times. I've usually read it more quickly than to smell the roses. I read that, and I went, is that true? The sacrifice that Abraham was willing to make with his son when he was going up there, that's a pretty big decision, radical decision, right? But, you know, it was by a command of God. He, if he had killed his son, he still would have had his family and wealth and all this other stuff. He wouldn't have been destitute. He wouldn't have been, right? So, wow, it turns out that is bigger. Okay, what about... What about Moses, right? I mean, Moses is brought up in Pharaoh's house. He has all that privilege and all that, everything else. But, but he is, he knows he's an Israelite and he sees an Israelite being abused by an Egyptian and he goes and kills the Egyptian. That's a pretty big thing. That was a pretty big radical decision. You know, it cost him everything. He ends up alone out in the wilderness. But he is a guy and he can still get by and, and there's all kinds of stuff. Is that really a bigger, more radical decision than what Ruth made right here? Is it? I don't think so. I think actually Tribble has gotten this exactly correct. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel than what this Moabitess woman did. Than what this woman did. Do you know what God just did right there? God gave the most radical, striking decision that has ever been made by a human being before Jesus Christ to a woman. It was a woman that he gave this incredible moment to. I'm telling you right there, I wanted to write the email. I didn't write it yet. I wrote it after some of these other revelations I'm about to tell you about. But can I just stop for a moment and just, just consider that? I mean, the depths of that, the importance of that. Is God for women? 
Amen. He's for men too. But in this culture, in this society, in this thing, what God has set her up to do at this moment in time, it's unparalleled. And it needs to be stopped and smelled. <laughs> it needs to be stopped and recognized. It needs to be stopped and let it sink into our hearts and plant a seed in us. In fact, let me take you to another revelation about it, okay? So I'm sitting here, and all of a sudden, like I said, I get to this moment, and all of a sudden, God just starts going, look at this, and look at this, and look at this, and look at this. And so, uh, no, just, just follow with me here. So think about this. When we think about in the Old Testament, who's the guy that we think of as being the most intimate with God of any person ever? In the Old Testament, David, right? I mean, this is the guy when God says, look, I raised up this guy Saul to be a king, your first king. And by the way, you guys would have picked him too. He's tall and handsome, but here's the key. Everybody knows power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So I'm picking a really humble guy. He was so humble that when they went to pray for him to make him king, he was hiding in the luggage. Hiding from it. This is a very humble guy. But in the end, what happens? Even this really, really humble guy, when he's really faced with a moment, and it happens repeatedly one time to the end of it, but it happens repeatedly when he's really faced with tough decisions, what does he end up doing almost every time? He ends up choosing what seems right in his eyes, not God's. And so there comes that fatal moment. But now Saul's your, this is Samuel speaking to him from the Lord, but now your Saul's kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And sure enough, when, they, when, the, when all the children of Jesse come, and there's a bunch of them, and, and, and Saul, Saul, uh, Samuel's seeing him, he goes, wow, that one's really cool. He must be king. Wow, that one's really cool. He must be king. But he's rejecting, 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 until they get down to there's one more little kid out in the field. And he brings him in, and he says, look, you guys look with the outward eyes. I look at the heart. And this is a man after my own heart. That's not to say that David didn't make choices for himself, is it? He did, didn't he? But what did he do after he did that? He would make this decision for himself, but then where would he go? Would he try and explain it to God? Would he try? This is what Saul did. When, when Samuel comes to Saul and he says, what did you do? Oh, well, the enemy was doing this, and this was doing this, and this was doing this. And he tried to defend himself. What does David do when he gets busted? I have one hope. I have one God. I have one truth. I have one way that is life. And I do not make excuses for it. I, I own it completely. I cannot believe it. But the bottom line is I have one hope. God, I cast myself into your hands. Remember, there's another time when they're having all these things and, and, and you know, what's going to happen in David's choices. I'm going to cast myself into the hands of God praying that he'll be merciful. But the bottom line is, what David is always doing is, is he's choosing God's way. That's where his heart is. He's always given over to that. Now, here's my question for you about David. Where did that come from? Was David, was every other person in the world just totally selfish, and all of a sudden this totally odd being showed up who just appeared from nowhere and was suddenly selfless, willing to lay down self for God? Where did that come from? They don't have TV, they don't have movies, they don't have newspapers and other things to distract you, they don't have Spotify. Here's what they have, stories that they tell about their family in order to shape the character of those that will come after them. 
Stories of wisdom. Stories that communicate the things of the greatest value. And here is David, a man's man, a warrior. But man, has he learned something from a mother who, watch this, if she had not made the choice that she did, there would be no David. But this woman made this incredibly selfless decision, a decision that was nothing but pouring out for someone else. And now this family is talking about this and raising this up and bringing this to a certain place in David's own heart where he now understands what it is to be selfless. And so he leads out of that hand, out of that path, which is to say this, women, the old saying is, behind every good man is a woman. We think of that typically in spouses. I want to tell you something. Good men do not rise out of nothing. They rise out of soil that is filled with women having done selfless things for that child. We are in a fallen world. Not every woman is doing this. But you know what? The thing that blew me away, the time when I decided that I was, in fact, going to write an email to every woman in this place was when I was looking at this and all of a sudden I realized that what Ruth did was not actually nearly as radical. It was truly the most radical decision in all the Old Testament, but it was not truly radical when you start considering it in the context of women. Because what is a woman? Think about the metaphor. Remember God said, in all of creation, my fingerprint is there. And what I do is, everything that I created, if you'll look at it carefully, if you'll stop and smell the rose, what you will see is, you will see a pattern that I've put in there for you to understand the greater thing. Now here's the analogy, the metaphor, that is in every woman's life. Oh. Can I just say, Serenity, you are not big enough to have made a baby that big. Can I just tell you that? That child is much bigger than, okay, but thank you. <laughs> but but here's, here's where I am, okay? I forget. <laughs> Help me. Fingerprint. Here's the analogy, the metaphor that's in every woman's life. Whether you've carried a child or not, every woman has this capacity to grow another human being inside of them to grow another person. Now think about for a second what that means. That means that there is another person who is literally taking your nutrients, your oxygen, your hormones, your cells, the very essence of what a woman is. She is literally, in the most incredibly selfless way, pouring her own being, her own essence, into this other being that it may grow. And it doesn't just stop when the baby comes out, does it? Because with that connection now, this is the woman sacrificing for her children, sacrificing for her husband, sacrificing for other people. This is the woman. Now again, I said we're in a fallen world, and so sometimes it's hard to see. But here's the truth that I suddenly saw from Ruth that made me write this email. I suddenly realized that Ruth is not actually unique at all. 
that every single woman in this room has the capacity for a selfless act that is transcendent. That goes all the way. And in fact, you are doing it in varying degrees every moment of your life. All the time. You are giving of yourself. Now, again, women are going to say a little bit. I told you earlier. They're going to say, really, your big revelation is that we're sacrificial? Duh. I want you to just ponder for just a moment here. Did you get it to this degree? Did you know this capacity to this degree? Do you know how God feels about you? Because I'll tell you how he feels about you. Because he wrote you a love letter. And he called it Ruth. And he wrote it in a way that is peculiarly, particularly oriented to how a woman would process a story and would bring it inside of her. He wrote it in your language, in your, the way that you're built. He wrote it to you as a love letter to communicate to you the depths of how much he gets it. Because see, as a woman being sacrificial, you can go through life and think to yourself, does anybody really get it? <laughs> I'm sacrificing here and it didn't seem like they appreciated it. I'm sacrificing here and it didn't seem like they appreciated it. And I'm sacrificing here and it didn't seem like they... And maybe I should just stop sacrificing. But really there's this thing in me that really wants to do this. And I want to do this. But it keeps coming back to me in this way. And, and, and this is the world and everything else. And here's what God is saying to you. I get it. I get it in the deepest possible way. Because after all, I'm the one that did exactly the same thing. I left my land. The Godhead. I came to a foreign land where I was hated and I gave everything of myself even unto death. God gets what you are. I want to say something. When I saw this, I recognized how deeply as a man I can never understand it. I can go to war and make a sacrificial thing. I can go into a burning building and try and save somebody and it's a sacrificial thing. But what I saw was an entirely different level of the nature of the sacrifice, of the totality, of the completeness, of the radical nature of the decision that women make and that they are in their deepest being. And what I said to myself is I will never be that. And what I said to myself was, I like my wife a lot more. I love her. I'm blown away by her. I mean, God opened my eyes. And I'm thinking right now that there's a lot of men right now that are saying a similar type thing of just going, that's just not how I processed the way that she acts and the way that she is. And the fact of the matter is, is that now that I hear this, I know that there is that capacity in there. And I have not done a good job of helping to nurture that of helping to be the, the, the one who is the recipient of, to my own benefit, for heaven's sakes, of this incredibly sacrificial nature of my wife or my friend, my spouse, my, this, these women that are willing to lay down everything of their life for someone else. In fact, I want to say it this way. Ruth is a love letter from God to women here. But women, you are God's love letter to all of mankind. You are the precursor to what came with Christ. Just as Ruth was the precursor to David, you are the precursor to the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus Christ. If we will but look soberly and rightly, if we will but smell the rose, if we will but come, to, come, but come to understand the depths of who God made you to be, we will see at a new level, even as men, 
who Christ is, who God is. You image God when you fulfill this capacity that God has put in you. And I just want to say, maybe I'm wrong because I'm a guy and I'm capable of it. But I just want to say that I think if you women will really look carefully in your heart, you will see that this raises you up. Even though you might have known parts of this, just really letting this sink down into your heart, it is God, I believe, this is what I want to do. This is why I told you you had to be here. Because I'm telling you, I think he's exalting you. He's raising you up. He's calling you. But he's also showing you. This is who I made you to be. And it's so beautiful. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we're not done yet, so please don't leave. We're going to do something else in just a moment, but just, Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, remind me again. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for a revelation. Thank you for a moment. Thank you for something here. God, I'm asking you that you would, in these next moments, that you would take and bury this deep in our hearts. We're going to do something really quickly first, and I don't mean to give it short shrift. I just don't want to interrupt the flow of it. So we're going to do something right now, and that is we're going to take an offering. And so if you would, even while I just continue to pray and ushers, thank you for coming forward. I just want you to, to pour into God's house, pour into God from this grace that he has poured out. Now, don't leave. Like I say, we're just about to do something a little bit different. I'm going to explain it as we start to take this offering. But God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I would pray that you would receive from our hands a thanksgiving for the things that you have done in our world, that we just don't take the time to smell the rose to get it. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we're going to take the time now, and we're going to smell that rose, and we're going to let it get down deep in our hearts with this offering and with what we're about to do. In Jesus' name. As the offering goes forward, would you please look at me because we're going to do something that kind of came out of this simple series. And, and I don't know how long we're going to do this or what we're going to do. Or I, this is just an experiment today. But here's been something that's been in my heart. God says something like this to everybody. And this is a moment, I think, right? This is a, there's something that's moved in your heart and, and everything else. And then what we do is we sing a song and take an offering and do communion. And when we're done, and then, you know, three or four hours from now, you still have a good feeling from it. But it's kind of already fading. And by tomorrow, you know it was a good message for women. And by Wednesday, 